and we will continue our study of the spiritual disciplines together. Father, we know how privileged we are to gather together as a church to worship You. We who have lived a life of rebellion against You until You graciously intervened and opened our eyes and brought us to Yourself. We who are worthy of judgment, and yet You've saved us and made us a people unto Yourself, a people for Your own possession. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for the body of Christ, for all of these people here this morning who are so faithful to serve You, and for the various gifts of the body, and how each of these dear saints use their gifts to edify the body. I'm so grateful to be a part of such a faithful local church. And we're thankful that You have given us the means of grace, the topic of our study this morning, uh, the various disciplines by which we grow to be more like Christ. And I pray that as we study this further, that You would give us clarity as, as far as what we are to do as Christians to grow, to be more like our Savior, to be more holy, to be more sanctified, and to be more conformed to the image of the One who saved us. So please give us help this morning, we pray. Amen. Alright, so picking up where we left off last week, we are in a study, again, of the spiritual disciplines, of the means of grace, uh, the various means by which we behold the glory of Jesus. He sprayed the door. He did do that, didn't he? Yeah. Was that that guy? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I think, I think that was He's that like guy. 30, 35 years old. Yeah, Maybe. He's yeah. not a kid. The guy we were dealing with last week. I didn't yeah. see him. It was. Okay. Alright, so we are dealing with uh, the spiritual disciplines, the various means by which we grow in grace. The two verses that kind of uh, form the foundation for the series, uh, 1 Timothy 4.7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, and 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, basically, the disciplines are the ways or the means by which we grow in grace. And they're disciplines because we're sinful. And it's not often natural for us to do the things that we should do, so we have to discipline ourselves to do these things. So, the spiritual disciplines, the means of grace, the means by which we behold the glory of Jesus so that we grow to love Him more and become like Him. That's what we're studying. We've looked at the first three in detail so far, right? Bible intake, prayer, and worship. And now we've come to the fourth spiritual discipline, which we began looking at last week. Who remembers the discipline we started to look at last week. Evangelism. Look at Caitlin. That's what taking notes does for you, doesn't it? So evangelism. We started to study evangelism. And I kind of prefaced our study of evangelism by asking this question. Why should we view evangelism as a means of grace? Or to put it another way, how does doing evangelism cause us to grow as Christians? And what do we conclude? How does doing evangelism cause Christians to grow? Right. You're challenged, you have to study more. If you're going to do evangelism, if you're going to tell people about the Word of God and teach the Word of God, you've got to know the Word of God. Right? You don't want to get up, speak, and not know what you're talking about. So that demands study, it causes growth and knowledge, and ultimately, uh, by God's grace, growth as a Christian and maturity. And after giving you that question, then I kind of went over the basics of evangelism. Okay? We, we considered several questions. The who, what, when, where, why, how of evangelism. So first of all, we talked about the what of evangelism. What is evangelism? Sharing the gospel, right? Declaring the good news. It's not, you know, share the gospel if necessary, use words. 
you have to use words, whether it's written form or spoken form. You have to use words because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ, right? Then we talked about who should do evangelism. And what do we conclude there? Everyone. Everyone. Specifically all Christians, right? Because unbelievers aren't going to share a gospel message they don't believe. So every believer should do evangelism because we're commanded by God, because of the Great Commission, and so on. But then we talked about when to do evangelism. When's that? Every chance we get all the time, always, right? Then we talked about where to do evangelism. These questions are really easy, aren't they? Everywhere. Take the gospel everywhere. And then we talked about why we should do evangelism. And that's the ultimate purpose, right? The chief end, to bring glory to God. And then finally, we kind of talked about some practical ways to do evangelism. You know, give out tracts. Um, you know, maybe pray with your waiter before you eat your food at, at a restaurant. Uh, write Christmas letters or, you know, stick them on the presents at the Christmas party. It's a gospel tracks there. So various ways to communicate the gospel. But now this morning we come to the second part. There's two parts to this study. The first one was the basics of evangelism. Now this morning we come to the second part, and I've entitled this, The Essential Components of a Gospel Message, An Outline for Evangelism. An Outline for Evangelism. Basically what I want to do this morning is I want to give you an outline of things to say to an unbeliever as you seek to communicate the Gospel to them. So if you're at you know, uh, a dinner and the person tells you the Bible's a fable, right? What do we say? Uh, that's what I want to kind of deal with today. What are some of the truths that we need to communicate to the unbeliever? So let me ask you that before we even get into the study. What are some things that we need to tell the unbeliever if we're going to effectively communicate the Gospel to them? What are some truths that we need to share with the unbeliever if we're going to communicate the Gospel to them? All are sinners. We talk about sin. Okay? That's important, isn't it? That's the one we like to skip over very quickly. And, and we all we like to do that one like this. Hey, we're all sinners, but hey, now let's get to the good news. It's been an hour and a half talking about the good news. Just like a five-second statement on the bad news. So tell people that they're sinners. What, what's going on? So, uh, what are some other truths? There's only one way to heaven. One way to God, right? Who's that? Jesus. Jesus. Right. One way to God. That's important. We were doing evangelism Friday night and uh, we had a woman come by and Caitlin offered her some gospel literature and then commented on her shoes. And the woman's response was, oh, I'm spiritual. And I said, the Bible says we're spiritually dead. And I said, you know, you need to understand the difference between just being spiritual and being rightly spiritual. And I was trying to communicate the gospel to her. And she said, no, I'm kind of Buddhist, I'm Hindu, I'm Christian, I'm Wicca, I'm all of it. I was like, ma'am, it doesn't work that way. right? There's one way to God, and it's Jesus. It's funny because then she said, well, the Bible's written by men who are full of crap. And I'm using a much better term than she did. And then I'm I'm wondering, well, where does she get her ideas from? She's a man. She's mankind, right? She's a human being. right? So if all human beings are full of crap, she falls into the category. So how does she know what she believes is true? There's only one way to know what we believe is true if it comes from an authoritative, inerrant source, God. That's where the Bible comes from. So we need to talk about sin, talk about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, the only way to God. What else? When we talk about Jesus as the only way, what what do we tell people about Jesus? His His perfection, His death, His resurrection. Right, there you go. That's a nutshell. That's the Gospel, right? What are some other things that we might tell an unbeliever? 
Well, I was asked, how do I... What did he ask me? He asked me something like, how do I become a Christian or something like that? And I said, well, you need to repent for your faith Amen. in Christ alone. Amen. So we need to... Well, what does that mean? And I was like, what does what mean? He's like, repentance. And I'm like, okay, well, it means to agree with God that you're a sinner and that you're were born in sin and that you need to turn from your sin. And I don't know. There you go. So we need to tell people how to respond to the gospel, right? And, and clarify it. Because obviously, you know, in the first century, when people said repent, they're garbed in religious language. They get that. Today, you know, we don't run around, you know, telling about our wives when we sin against them, I, I repent. Now, we would say something like, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And if we're genuine, we won't do it again, right? But the word repentance is, I didn't know what the word repentance meant until I was 19 and God saved me through a message online by Paul Washer. I had no clue what the word meant. So we need to clarify it, right? Well, good job, Sean. You get an A+. Plus. So, so tell people how to respond. All right, I have a simple outline here for you. It'll probably take us two or three weeks at least to get through this, maybe four or five. Uh, but it's very in detailed. It's very detailed. And so it's a simple five-point outline. Okay? And I can email this to you as well if you would like a copy of it. But five points. God. Number one, God. Number two, man. Number two, man. Number three, Christ. Christ. Number four, Response, I'll repeat these one more time, so don't worry. Response, and number five, promises and warnings. So God, number one. Man, number two. That's the logical order, right? God, man, Christ. Response, number four. And then number five, promises and warnings. I have that as kind of one category. Promises and warnings. God, man, Christ, response, promises, and warnings. So we'll start this morning by looking at God. That's where it begins. Paul Washer says uh, that the gospel begins with the knowledge of God. That's where it starts. John Calvin in his institute said, all true wisdom is bound up in a true knowledge of God and of ourselves. That's where it starts. It starts with God. So let's turn for a minute in your Bible to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And if you have an outline, if you're trying to write an outline, basically mine goes something like this. Number one, God. And under that I have A, the problem. The problem. Because there is a problem. And Romans 10 is going to tell us what the problem is. Romans 10, verses 1 to 4. We'll start with verse 1. Romans 10, verse 1. Apostle Paul is writing here in the book of Romans his great magnum opus, his most important writing, a clear exposition of the gospel of Jesus. And now he's in a section in chapters 9 to 11 where the question is okay, what about Israel? You know, where does national Israel fit in here? And chapter 9, Paul says, well, God has not chosen every Jew to be saved. The gospel, God setting aside national Israel is consistent with his plan because he hasn't chosen every Jew. Then he gets to chapter 10, and in light of the fact that he acknowledges that God is just in condemning unbelieving Jews, he then expresses his heart for the Jews. And he does that starting in verse 1. Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is Israel, is for their salvation. I want them to be saved. Verse 2. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, 
but not in accordance with knowledge. So the Jews are religiously zealous, right? I mean, they're very zealous for Judaism, for their religious practices, for their traditions. But he says they, that, that zeal is not according to knowledge. In other words, they're ignorant of something. And what is it they're ignorant of? Look at verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. What is it they're ignorant of? The righteousness of God. What does that mean? What does it mean that the Jews did not know about the righteousness of God? What do you think that might mean? Not knowing about the righteousness of God. Alright, I'll tell you what it means. So basically, the Jews were ignorant. I think there's kind of four things here that just three of them flow from the first one. Number one, they're ignorant as to how perfectly righteous God is. They just don't get it. That God is so impeccably righteous that secondly, His standard is righteous, is perfectly righteous. Okay? God's standard is as high as God Himself. So what would you think about a judge if he had a rapist before him and he just let him go? Is that a good judge? It's a horrible judge. And and the judge's standard, his judicial standard, reflects something about his character, doesn't it? That's not a good judge. He has a corrupt character. If God's standard was lower, He would compromise His own character, His own perfection. So God is perfectly righteous. The Jews failed to get that. Thus, His standard is perfectly righteous. And if we lower God's standard, what does that do for us? If we lower the standard of God, what does that do? Do whatever we want. Kind of do whatever we want, or it makes it more attainable. We can get away with things and still attain the righteousness of God, right? So, if you have a lower view of God's righteousness, you have a lower view of His standards, that gives you a higher view of yourself. I can reach that. Okay. So, God doesn't really require perfection. I can live in sin... But I just engage in religious activity and say, I'm sorry. We see that in Catholicism, right? The standard to get saved isn't perfection. It's all I have to do is work together with Jesus, and if I go to Mass, and if I get baptized, and do all these things, I can reach the standard. But God's standard is perfection because He is perfect. But when we lower that standard, we think we can get there. So they're ignorant as to how perfectly righteous God is. They're ignorant as to how perfectly righteous God's standards are, and thus they're ignorant as to how unrighteous they are. And then fourthly, they're ignorant as to how desperately they need the righteousness of God in the Gospel. If I lower the standard of God, I think, you know what, I can merit my own righteousness. I can do this. And and that problem is the same problem you're going to encounter with almost everyone you talk to in our culture. What did those guys say the other day? You know, remember that guy who said, you know, his what did he say? One of his friends is a good person. It's a good person. Of course he is. If you lower God's standard, good person according to who? God's standard is perfection. But almost everyone we talk to on the streets who's unconverted, they're going to do as the proverb says. They're going to each man proclaim his own goodness. Because he fails to understand the perfect righteousness of God. He doesn't get it. So what's the solution then? If man is ignorant of God's righteousness, what do we do? Man's ignorant of the perfect righteousness of God. What should we do in response? Tell them. Very simple, right? Tell them about the 
righteousness of God. Tell them about the character of God. Alright, so we need to communicate to the unbeliever who God is. What are some things that you would say to an unbeliever to help communicate who God really is? Because does our culture have a biblical understanding of God ordinarily? What are some misconceptions our culture has about God? Almost exclusively, right? Just a loving God. And it's true, God is love. We won't downplay that. We are thankful that God is love, but that's not all God is, right? That's one of His manifold perfections. So, that's one misconception. What is another misconception people have about God? That He's not always fair. He's not always fair. Okay, give an example of what that might, how might that, what might they say to communicate that? Somebody might say he's not fair because their life has been difficult and hard and they've gone through all these hardships and if God was fair, then why do I have to go through all this? Why did he take my husband? Why did he take my kid? Why is this happening to me? Yeah. That's Especially good because I'm good. Exactly. Right. That goes back, see, that goes right back to the problem, doesn't it? Yep. Exactly. What's a good response? That is a good response. What's another way we could respond? If someone says, you know, it's just not fair. God's not been fair to me. My life's been so hard. What's another way we could respond? I already know what Sean's going to say. What, go ahead, Sean. Say what you're going to say. Whether it's wrong or right, my response is going to be that fair. Um, you don't want fair. Because that you sends you. Fair sends everybody to hell. All right. What do we want? You want grace want and grace. mercy. Right. Fair, justice. And, and God saves us in a manner that is just to the gospel. But if God gives us personally divine justice, we go to hell. Right? Divine fairness sends us to hell. To say that my life is difficult and God's not fair is... And we, we want to sympathize with people. We get it. Life's hard. We really do care about people. We, we, if somebody tells me you know, they've lost a family member, I love you. I care about you. I'm sorry to hear that. But God's not being unfair. The fact that you're breathing is an evidence you're sucking mercy in your lungs. You don't even deserve anything. You deserve hell. Anything less than hell's mercy from God. Right? And if we had the right view of God in ourselves, we'd understand that. Uh, so those are some misconceptions about God. What, what are some things about God that we need to tell the unbeliever? What are some of his, maybe his attributes that we should communicate? He's holy. God is holy. God is holy. What does it mean that God is holy? We've talked about it before, right? What does the word holy mean? Set apart, right? The word hagias, set apart. God is set apart. He's holy. What is He set apart from? Sin. What is He set apart unto? Righteousness. Goodness, right? So God is set apart from sin unto righteousness. We all know the passage in Isaiah 6 where the angels are before the throne of God and they're crying out, what? Threefold. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Right? And then... And Isaiah's response in the presence of God is, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And we know that the angel brings a coal and touches his lips and it's a symbol of cleansing and atonement. It's funny though, if you contrast Isaiah's response in the presence of God with the so-called you know, books that give trips to heaven today, you know, 90 minutes in hell or 15 minutes in heaven or whatever it is today, their responses are usually very different. You know, one guy said, oh, the Holy Spirit was blue and I was all happy. And John goes to heaven and he falls down like a dead man. Right? Isaiah goes to heaven and he's crying out, I'm a man of unclean lips. And that's what they do. People do that when we bring them face to face with God. 
So if someone's going to be saved, they need to understand the problem, right? You don't ordinarily go to the doctor just to go to the doctor. Once a year for a physical, maybe. But apart from that, you don't just go to the doctor and say, hey, I just want to make sure I'm not sick. No, if, you're, if you go to the doctor, well, I don't know, I guess in COVID season, we might, that might not be a good illustration today. But usually, apart from COVID, you don't just go to the doctor for that. You go to the doctor because you have symptoms, because you're sick. So the unbeliever needs to realize there's a problem, that he's sinful, that he can't get to heaven. The best way to show him that is to bring him face to face with the character and the attributes of God. And then he'll cry out like Isaiah, like John. So the holiness of God. 1 John 1.5 says that in Him, that He is light, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Okay, God is righteous and true. There is no sin or falsehood in God at all. He is perfectly holy. So if you want to talk about the holiness of God, Isaiah 6, 1-7 is a good passage. Revelation 4.8 is a good passage. And I think 1 John 1.5 is a good passage. Alright, a second thing you want to tell the unbeliever. Talk to him about God's hatred for sin. God's hatred for sin. Because God is holy, God hates sin. And let me ask you this, does God just hate the sin? What else does God hate? The sinner. There's a cliche in our culture, it goes like this, and by the way, this quote did not come from the Bible. It did not come from a Christian expositor or preacher or teacher. It came from a man named Gandhi. I don't think we should get our theology from Gandhi. Gandhi said, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. But let's look what the Bible says. Turn to Psalm 5. Psalm 5. Psalm 5. And I want to look at verse 4 and 5. Actually, we'll even go down to verse 7. Psalm 5, starting in verse 4. The psalmist writes, Out of the inspiration of the Spirit of God, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. According to that psalm, who does God hate? Does He hate the sin? He hates the ones who do iniquity. He hates the sinner. Then He goes on, you destroy those who speak falsehood. Notice God doesn't destroy lying, does He? He destroys the liar. He destroys those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors... That's just a strong word for hates. He abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. So that's what the Bible says. Right? Do we get our theology from Gandhi or the Bible? Okay? The Bible says God hates the worker of iniquity. Turn to Proverbs now. Proverbs chapter 6. And as we're turning there, let me say this. When we talk about God's hatred, this is important. I'm not advocating that you stand in front of uh, you know, a LGBTQ gathering and scream out, God hates fags. That is not a legitimate way to do evangelism. If you do that, you need to repent. That's not a biblical way to do it. What I am saying is that as we're communicating gospel truth to the unbeliever, we need the unbeliever to see that he is under the fierce anger and hatred of God because of his sin. He needs to come to understand the severity of the situation. And when we talk about God's hatred, we're not saying that God has this fuzzy feeling in Him that bubbles up and makes Him just get so hateful toward the unbeliever. When we talk about God's hatred, what is God's hatred? Does anybody have an idea of what God's hatred is? God's hatred is basically synonymous with His wrath, with His justice, with His judgment. God's hatred is His the determination of His will 
to bring judgment upon the wicked. To set His face against the wicked. It's a just disposition toward the wicked. Okay? That's all it is. It's God's wrath and anger set against the wicked. Look at Proverbs 6, starting in verse 16. Starting in verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Notice, God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. And then notice verse 19. A false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. According to those two passages, does God just hate the sin? Who does He hate? The sinner. It's biblical. So a better way to put it would not be God hates the sin and loves the sinner. A better way to put it, and it sounds paradoxical, but it's not a contradiction, is that God hates and loves the sinner. God hates and loves the sinner. With one hand, He's bidding the sinner to come, and the other, He's holding back His wrath because He is angry with the sinner, and yet He at the same time wants to do good to the sinner. And so, what we're saying is that God has a love of benevolence for everyone, a common grace toward everyone. He, he gives life and breath even to the most wicked man on the earth, right? God is loving even toward that person. But at the same time, if he's not in Christ, God is angry with that person and his wrath abides upon that person. So God both loves and hates the sinner. Now, for the believer, God's wrath is removed, right? There is no hatred, anger from God upon the believer. Because he's redeemed in Christ, the wrath of God has subsided in Christ. God is chastened to the believer, but he never pours out wrath upon him, right? We're saved from the wrath of God. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God's eyes are too pure to approve of evil and that He cannot look upon wickedness with favor. God hates sin. So we talk about God's holiness. We talk about God's hatred for sin. What are some other attributes of God we might talk about to the unbeliever? What else does the unbeliever need to know about God? Is God just a Savior? What else is He? He's a judge. So we need to talk about the righteous judgment of God. Go to Romans 2. Romans chapter 2. Aren't you glad I don't do this in the sermon and you don't have to flip over and over again? Romans chapter 2. That passage in Proverbs is good to point out sin too because yes. other than murder there, most of those are things that everybody does. Exactly. And even murder is done in the heart by the unbeliever, right? We need to point out how they've already committed that in their heart. You know, when the Bible says their feet are swift to shed blood in Romans chapter 3, a quote from the Psalms, I believe that's true of every human being. Every human being's feet is quick to shed blood. The only thing that prevents most of us from killing other people, and this is serious, before we're converted at least, is that there are restraints put in place. God in His common grace ordains and establishes governing authorities. So I know that if I go out and kill this guy, I'm liable to be arrested. Right? That restrains me. Or I know if I try to kill this guy, he might try to kill me. But apart from some of those things, most unbelievers, if they had the chance to just rip this guy's head off and take his possessions, they'd do it. Right? Because our hearts are evil and our feet are swift to shed blood. Alright, so God's righteous judgment. Romans 2, starting in verse 6. Verse 6. As we read this passage, I want us to kind of note some of the some of uh, some truths about the judgment of God. Verse six: 
God is the one who will render to each person according to his deeds. So God's going to judge people based on what? Their deeds. What does that mean? Does that mean we can be saved by our good deeds? What does that mean? Because this is a passage that troubles many when they read things like that. What does it mean that God's going to judge us based upon our deeds? Final judgment, okay. So that doesn't mean that good people have easy lives. That's true, okay. That's definitely not true. What about uh, what if someone says to you, see, I told you, we're saved based upon what we do, our good deeds save us? How would you answer that objection? Is that what Paul's saying here? By works alone you're not saved. Well, not by works at all, right? But this passage says God's going to judge everybody according to His deeds. So we're going to get judged. Okay, you'll be judged, not saved by your good deeds. Okay, there's one of two ways to answer this. Okay, the Bible, Jesus does this too. Jesus says there's going to be a resurrection. Those who do the good deeds will go to life. Those who do the evil deeds will go to judgment. Okay. Now, Paul, I'm convinced in light of the context, is being hypothetical. Paul goes on to verse seven. Look at he says. To those who by perseverance in doing good, and the doing good here he's talking about is perfection in light of the context. It's the keeping of the law. Those who in perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. So those who do good will get what? But now go to, quickly, look over at Romans 3, verse 10. Romans 3, verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. They've all turned aside and become useless. There is none who does good. Now, time out. Paul says in chapter 2, the one who does good gets eternal life. Chapter 3 says there's none that do good. So if our deeds are the determination of where we spend eternity, and if those who do good go to heaven, how many people will get there? No one. That's Paul's point here. No one can be saved by his works. No one can be saved by the law. In fact, go to the end of chapter 3. That's what he says. Verse 20. Verse 20, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. That's what Paul's doing here. He's showing us that there's no way to get to God on our own. That our works can't do it. So the only one who actually fits the category of verse 7 is who? Who's the only one who does good? Jesus. So the only one who's merited eternal life is Jesus and all of those who are in Jesus. That's the point Paul's trying to make as he works through Now in John, when Jesus says that there's a resurrection and those who do the evil deeds go to destruction, those who do the good deeds go to life, the point Jesus is making there, I think, is that those who are truly saved do good works as an evidence of their salvation and those are the ones that get into sin. But I think Paul's doing something different here. Paul's trying to show the unbeliever that he is guilty before God, that he has absolutely no hope to be justified before God apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Alright, so God's judgment is based on deeds. Verse 8. Romans 2, verse 8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious... I don't have my phone, by the way. Someone keep up the time for me. At 9.15... At 10.15 on. I have to quit. So to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth... Who is that? Naturally, who is selfishly ambitious? Everybody. But obey unrighteousness, they'll get wrath and indignation. 
There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. So God's going to judge us based upon our deeds. Look at verse 12. For all who sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What is God going to judge us by? The law. He says those who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. Who's that? Who sins without the law? Not everyone, because every, because some people have the law, okay? Oh yeah. But everyone sins. Everyone breaks the law. Yeah. But there's two kind of categories here. Paul's dealing with. Go back to verse verse ten. The Jew first, and also the Greek. Yeah. Those prior to Moses, but the Greek, the Gentile, Gentile nations in the Old Testament, they didn't have inscripturated revelation, right? They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have the Pentateuch, the Torah, the Law of Moses. So, how can we expect those people to be accountable to God? Are they accountable to God? That's right. He wrote the law in their hearts. Look at verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, right? I mean, there are unbelievers who've never heard about God in other villages and they refuse to kill people and show kindness to people. Why? Because the law is in their heart. They instinctively understand what's right from what's wrong because of general revelation. He says, These not having a law are a law to themselves. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts. Verse 15. So, every human being knows what is right from what is wrong, don't they? Every human being has the moral law of God either encoded on stones in Scripture or encoded on their hearts. So, every unbeliever is guilty and without excuse. God's going to judge us by the law. And then go to the end of verse 16. One more thing here. Paul says, All of this is going to happen on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Don't miss that. Judgment, Paul says, is according to my gospel. Did you notice that? He says, According to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men. So, was Paul's message nothing but a message of love? No. His message involved a message of judgment and of wrath. That was essential to the gospel that Paul preached. So we need to talk about the righteous judgment of God. Fourthly, we need to talk about God's standard. What is God's standard? How high is the bar? Perfection. Perfection. God demands perfection. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now some people say that word perfect there means mature. Okay? You must be as mature as God is mature. How mature is God? Mature, mature. He's perfectly mature. So you've got to be perfect. God is the standard. That's what He's saying. Galatians 3.10, Paul quoting from Deuteronomy says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law. So, if you don't keep the law, you're under a what? Curse. 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 James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law, stumbles at one point, he's guilty of it all. So, if, if you've got to be perfectly obedient, what in the world does that leave? Where does that leave us? We're all sinners, right? So how can we be saved? You don't, you don't believe you're perfect in a, like, most 
I think there are times when the Bible uses it that way. You're talking about from Colossians when Paul talks about being perfect in Christ and he's talking about maturing. There is times when the Bible talks about that. But here I think Jesus is really meaning to be perfect as God is. That's what he says, right? You've got to keep the whole law, Paul says. So how can we be saved? For Jesus. So if you bring the unbeliever, if you show him, hey, look, this is the standard. Jesus says you've got to be perfect. Paul says you're cursed if you're not perfect. Are you perfect? The unbeliever goes, well, of course not. But then you even get specific. Have you ever lied? Yeah. Have you ever stolen? Have you ever used the name of God in vain? You're guilty. The standard's perfection. What are you going to do? There's nothing you can do, right? That leaves the sinner hopeless. And it leaves the only solution left to be the gospel. Gospel. And then finally, talk about God's justice. God's justice. Exodus 34 7 says that God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's bad news, isn't it? Because who's guilty? Everyone's guilty. So if God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, how can God save us and yet be just? The cross. Right? That's the only way. And then in Proverbs 17.15, we read this. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination before God. Okay? We get that. We went back to the courtroom with the judge and the rapist. If the judge was to acquit the guilty criminal, he's not a good judge. He's an abomination. God says that's the way it is. It's an abomination. So, here's the question that the Gospel answers. How can God do the very thing that He says is unjust, that He says is an abomination, how can He do that, namely justify the wicked, and yet do it in a way that is just? How can God forgive sinners, not punish sinners, and yet still be just? What's the answer? Because He's God. He made everything. Well, He's God, but God can't violate His own Word. God can't... I'm going to say something that sounds blasphemous. God can't do everything. Did you know that? God can't do everything. God can't lie, can He? God cannot make 2 plus 2 equal 5. Because that's contrary to His own nature. That's contrary to logic, which logic comes from God. So God can only justify the wicked and be just. How? The price of death is paid. That's right. If a Savior comes and He takes our place and He appeases the justice of God, right? That's the Gospel. So when we're trying to communicate the Gospel to the non-believer... We're not telling him, look, God loves you. You, you're, you know, you have a God-shaped hole in your heart. You need, you need to be fulfilled. Come to Jesus. He'll make your life happy. That's the common gospel presentation in our culture, but that's not the biblical gospel. Jesus never appealed to people's emotional uh, unfulfillment, unfulfillment to, to try to motivate them to come to, the, to Christ. It's always about a need for forgiveness and a need for reconciliation to God through His death on the cross. Have you ever heard people say this, or at least heard something like this? That man, I hope you know God kind of brings this person to rock bottom, and maybe he'll come to Jesus. Have you ever heard of that? That the gospel presentation of our culture—that's what has to happen. Because what happens when a sinner is living a normal life? He's just enjoying it. He lives in America. He's got the American dream. I mean, he's got a nice car, beautiful swimming pool, beautiful family. Why does he need Jesus? He's happy. It's because he doesn't understand his real need, right? If his need is happiness, he doesn't need Jesus, at least not right now. What is his real problem? It's not unhappiness. It's guilt. It's being under the wrath of God. And him wanting to only serve himself and be his own God. 
That's right. That's what we naturally want, isn't it? Just living it up as my own God, I'm happy, I'm good. I think I've given you this illustration before. Let me give it to you again to kind of help you understand where I'm coming from. Imagine a man walks onto a plane. The flight attendant tells him to put a parachute on. He says, look, it's going to make your flight really comfortable. Make you have a good flight. The man says, I'll give it a try. Puts the parachute on, gets flying, notices that the parachute's kind of heavy on him. It's harder to breathe with it on. And people are laughing at him because he's wearing a parachute on an airplane. And then the flight attendant spills some coffee in his lap. And he's like, you know, forget this. This, this didn't work. Didn't, I'm taking this off. It didn't give me a better flight. But a second man walks onto the plane. He gets on. They're flying. And the flight attendant says, you need to put this parachute on. Because at any minute, this plane's about to crash. You're going to have to jump from you know, 8,000 feet. The only thing that's going to save you from the law of gravity is this parachute. Now he's going to put the parachute on. He doesn't care if it's an uncomfortable ride. He doesn't care if people are laughing at him. Because as far as he's concerned, the parachute has saved him from, sudden, from certain death. Right? That is the way it is with the Gospel. We don't want to tell people, put Jesus on, try Jesus, He'll give you a better life. We want to tell people that you're about to jump out of this world in death eventually. You're going to face the law of God. It's going to condemn you. The only one that can save you is Jesus. You need to put Him on. You need to trust in Him. You need to come to Him. Right? Then it won't matter if their life's hard or it won't matter if their life's easy. You, you come to the unbeliever who's happy, it doesn't matter if you're happy. You need the Gospel because you need to be rescued from hell. Jesus alone can do that. So that's the importance. People don't feel the guilt. That's true. That's Got to drive them home. I know. That's a good point. How do we do that? How do we get them to see their guilt? Talk about God. Talk about His standard in a practical way. And we'll talk more about this next week. Is to use the Ten Commandments, right? Again, have you ever lied? Sean read that the other day, right? I think, where are you going to go? The law of God points at you again, leaves you against the wall. You have nowhere to go. And the Gospel is the only escape. Alright, that's the character of God. Next week we'll pick up with point number two. So we're moving along, right? Point number two next week. Any final thoughts, questions, or comments before we close this morning? So where do we begin in our evangelism? What do you think? Who? God. We talk about the character. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for rescuing us from our hopeless plight. Left to our own devices, there's no way we would have ever been saved. We're not good enough. We're not righteous enough. Our hearts are corrupt. But You have so kindly manifested Your grace to us in the Gospel. You've rescued us from hell through the death of Jesus and have brought us into Your everlasting kingdom. We're thankful for that. Be with us now as we take a short break and fellowship together. As we come back to sing and pray and hear the Word of God and take the sacraments and do it for Your glory. We pray these things to that end. Amen.